get started with a prayer. <coughs> Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this, for this day you've given us. We thank you for this opportunity for us to talk about your workings throughout the history. We ask you, Lord, for recollection and for understanding. Christ, I may pray. Amen. So this was a very exciting couple of hundred years, and uh, there's just way more information than you could possibly cover if you actually looked at the entire world. It is actually going to be primarily Europe that we focus on today, and I've tried to figure out a way to spark some questions and conversations. I think this particular time of the, of the pair of centuries, uh, we see a lot of the things that we recognize today as differentiators in our current denominations and churches around us. And so I think this is finally going to be a good leaping off point where we'll start seeing uh, evidence of the historical pathways that different churches and, and cultures have taken. Thank you very much. Oh, that a moment. So on your handout, there is by no means a complete list of events, but events that started up in the 1400s and ended in the 1600s, and we're going to cover each and every one of them in detail today. Just kidding. <laughs> but there are several that will hopefully start tying things together. One of the first ones that I wanted to point out was the one in 1439. Do you remember how we had the Great Schism a couple weeks ago? This, 1439 was a time whenever the European or the Eastern Orthodox Church was very concerned about the Turks invading them, invading them, and so they became more amenable to the idea of reunifying with the Latin Church and the Church of Rome, and so there was actually a a, group, a meet and greet where they did indeed uh, sign a let's get back together pact which uh, didn't last for very long but it did make the people up there in Kiev Rus, remember that fellow that we, we mentioned as well that this entire new region that we don't really think that much about in the eastern side there they said no we're not going that way and they, we have our first autocephalous or self-uniting, one. I'm the head of me, patriarchy in that region. And so we really start to see a divergence again of that, of that new Eastern Orthodox and the new Western Orthodox Church that we're going to see now really change as, as it's challenged by what we saw last week with John Huss and multiple people starting to question whether indulgences were right or not. And so on the flip side of your timeline, there are some boxes that have a few, uh, a few names and some issues that I found to be fairly obvious, but were, it's almost like a thread of a, a spider's web. If you pull one, it's, it's attaching to all the others. It's remarkable how many people in such a fairly large area, since they didn't have phones, they didn't have cars, their getting about and around was done primarily on horseback. And so 
to see the writings and how things traversed at this time of the, of the world is, was, was unique to me. And so I also found it interesting that there's actually somewhat of a, a dispute and argument with one person that's not even alive any longer. So whenever we see the uh, portion on election in 1590, that was writings that were being compared to someone that had passed for quite a while, at least 30 years. So that's not bad when your writings are held up and, and uh, looked to as being rational re representations of the word. So, so just to, uh, I guess we'll flip back to the timeline for a moment and kind of wander down through there again. That unification we spoke of didn't last very long. We have the fall of Constantinople less than 20 years later. And so by that time, that uh, unification just didn't, didn't do that much good because essentially we now have the Ottoman Empire in charge there. We, we see our first printed Bible in 1456, which is something that... Uh, we think about a printed Bible as being what we're used to today, but in this case, the capital uh, letters of the first sentence of the paragraph was left off. And a, a monk wrote a colored letter and gilded that. So that's why there's only like 180 copies that were made. And to me, uh, that's kind of a, a probably a very beautiful merging of the art of they were in the past by hand doing it and then this printing uh, on vellum parchment so we had some some rough times with the Spanish monarchs uh, we talked a little bit about the Inquisition in the past and in 1492 we remember Columbus sailing the ocean blue but it was also the time whenever the monarchs demanded that if you are Jewish that you got baptized. And if you weren't going to get baptized, they truly showed you the door. And so they said, if you don't leave, we'll help you reconsider your convictions. And so, ironically, a lot of the, uh, the nasty bits that we think of were them trying to confirm that there was actually conversion. So it would be someone that stayed but didn't display or show their new beliefs so uh, that was a beginning of the migration of peoples based on their beliefs and we're going to see that as well in the Huguenots in France later in the centuries where oftentimes we wonder why did we have such a need to move whenever we didn't like the government or they didn't like us and our beliefs but if it weren't for all this turmoil, again, we wouldn't have had a stirring that pushed the belief system again out into the world. And so, if we were to go down to 1502 there, we'll kind of start to get ready to talk about our first one, indulgences. Uh, Johann Tetzler, sadly, he's, a, he's an infamous character. He was the fellow that was a fairly gifted uh, speaker as far as being able to carry a room in a crowd. He originally started off his work for a cardinal in the indulgences world of, um, you know the Teutonic 
league or the order that's kind of these Germanic tribes. I think of them, unfortunately, because of old German war movies, but that's kind of where he was originally tasked was to gather money for the, uh, that Teutonic Legion order because they were going broke. And so Cardinal Medici, who later becomes Pope Leo, basically says, go ahead and, and, and preach the indulgence. And the indulgence had been a, they had started off as kind of a every 50 years, a jubilee type forgiveness. And then they kind of got squished down to 33 years. And then they kind of got, well, this is a special event, special thing. And so uh, that, was, that was how he really got his start, was trying to gather money for this group. Later, he would actually preach for the, uh, the Jubilee to, to pay for St. Peter's Basilica. But in 1502, we see him getting his first uh, order to go forth and gather. And he was good at it. And it brought not just attention from, from Luther, it brought attention from, from Zwingli and others as well. There was many people that were not too pleased with that. And so... If we look at the indulgences, what do, you, what do we think was the root of indulgences? And obviously there are a couple of, of things on there, but what would be your concern be? Terry's got a good grin on his face. I mean, it's a work. Yeah, it is. There was 100% they wanted money. But what was so distorted about it was the way that they were believing that, that there was this treasury of merit. And so that treasury of merit was essentially the pool that Christ had created because of his unlimited, you know, he was, he was so perfect, he put all of this in there. And then in addition to that, it was considered that if you was a, were a good person, and you, yeah, sorry about that, <laughs> If you was, then you could, in fact, have too much merit. And so you could give some of yours to someone else. And so it, it became a very odd system where truly people were like going, can I pay for a future sin? And I kind of like the idea that you could basically look at the menu and decide, mm, is it worth it? it be. Yeah, I might be better later. So maybe I don't need this. It was very awkward, and truly, uh, pardon me. It's carbon offset. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're living it today, brother. It was uh, purgatory had been around for a little while. But the idea of it is still, at this time, being uh, finally tossed about that that's not how it works. The, the Reformers, the Lutherans, and such, were starting to say, if it's not merit, why would I be there for a while? And so this is really the time whenever you're going to see that idea of purgatory challenged, and it is uh, basically said there's, that there isn't a purgatory. So, again, if there's not a purgatory, a waiting room for this merit to, to find you, 
so you can go on, that kind of undermines the uh, idea of the treasury of merit. And so, and, and the treasury of merit, the Catholic Church does say they're the only ones that can draw from it. So it's kind of their bank. Yes? Well, what's interesting about this, if that goes to the idea of purgatory, is, is this concept of honey and grace, mm -hmm. which some people think it started with Arminius. It actually began with the Roman Catholic Church. The idea of God's reaching out to you, and it's up to you to reach back and hang on. And you'll never be, you know, you're constantly in this state of moving back and forth by the fact that you sin. Therefore, the upside with the Roman Catholic Church is at least in purgatory you get to burn it off, and then you go up with Armenians. No, you just go straight to hell if you lose because you you may if you, if you lose your sense of salvation. You have to have this idea of the idea of perseverance of the saints is just not there. Yeah, that's that's going to be one of the final things we hopefully we'll get to today will be election. But that's why I was saying it's a thread that if you pull on it, it ties them all together, and it all is underlined by the work of the Spirit changing our hearts. If that isn't a thing, then sure you have to have this someone else doing it for you. And we do have someone else doing it for us, but only Christ. And so, in the case of the indulgences, we have uh, a new emperor, Charles, Charles V, who's a little ambivalent about things. He's kind of seeing the writing on the wall, that this is not going as well as I'd like it to. And so he, in fact, uh, begins at this point He's still staunchly in support of the church at this point, but later he will in fact uh, begin this separation that causes a problem uh, between him and, and the Pope. Would there have been um, corruption or misappropriation of the funds? That was widely assumed. I mean, sadly at this point, people are basically being uh, ordained, and it's very common to go ahead and buy the uh, parish that you would like to be at. So it's just kind of assumed that instead of be, being appointed, I'm going to uh, I'm going to just kind of say I'd like to be there, and if I supply enough funds, I can go there. And then you can collect all the funds. And well, yeah, and by no means was this a universal thing. There were a lot of Catholic priests that did not want this, but it was so ingrained that it was okay, that it was very prevalent. And so, depending upon your uh, monastery that you came out of, you had a vastly different opinion of it. And so the Benedictine monks and the, uh, the Franciscan monks, the Dominican monks, of which uh, Tetzel was a part of, they, the Dominicans were really big in this front. So. You, you truly have to go and, and basically pray, and you as a person have to have enough extra merit to give it to your family that's passed. And so it kind of becomes a horrible chain letter of you're paying for the person that's passed, and you're hoping your children will pay for you. But it all centered around the fact that you also had this year of Jubilee that if you could make it to that point, 
then you could maybe go to Rome, and uh, they opened the doors, all four of them, and you could go in, and you'd be you'd be given a forgiveness of things. And so it's it's a masterful way of tying a, a mass of people into a, a group, and I think that's one of the reasons why it was so repugnant to so many people whenever they actually again connected the dots because prior to people studying and finding their way to say wait I don't see me in this picture I see this only being Christ it really it really was what you were being taught and so we're we're all very familiar with the story of Luther most likely if you haven't seen the movie there's a couple of them out there and both of them are pretty good I like the older one better but that's uh, that's just, I guess, my preference. No, the, older, the older one covers the theology better. The newer one covers the drama better. <laughs> so. and, and what's funny is uh, I actually stumbled upon a, a 1972 uh, Encyclopedia Britannica production of, uh, of the Reformation that, man, I, I, I'm going to have to save that link because it was rather humorous. They, they brought in all kinds of actors and dressed them up in their appropriate garb. And then they kind of spoke out as if they were that person. And the one they chose for Martin Luther was uh, very bombastic. And he was considered a, kind of the bull. So. But, um, and so those indulgences are ultimately what did lead to the, the, the Martin Luther's 95 Thesis. We're very, we're very... Again, we have that festival every year that we all come and go, woo It's a good thing it started. And so we're all very familiar with that. But uh, from that, again, he was excommunicated. And ultimately, if you've never read that portion of, the, of his speech, uh, R.C. Sproul does a great uh, rendition of, of that. And, and it's in one of, the, one of the albums I have of him reading his Revoco. And it was... I would commend that as a, a pleasant, pleasant thing to listen to. So the other thing I think was interesting about this time is you wonder why did they have to gather all this money? Well, if in 1512, five years previously, Michelangelo completed the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And so it's not cheap to have all that done. And that was only one example of the works being done because every area had a church in it that every area wanted to be as pretty as the next and so there's a there's a lot of really beautiful buildings in Europe sadly several several did not make it that were uh, very prominent at this time because of the wars but it is very nice so so if you're kind of curious what on earth is your color scheming John so what I tried to do with the color schemes a little bit was kind of show who was on which base. And so the red lines of Pope Leo X tie him to transubstantiation in the Lord's Supper and also tie him to the treasury of merit and indulgences. And he was involved with other aspects of things, but for the most part, we just try to... I tried to give just a, a glimpse of all the players... In his case, he came from a very wealthy banking family out of, out of Italy. And so the Medicis were well off. But uh, he, 
he is the fellow that basically excommunicated Luther. And so that's why I felt like he is definitely a, a, a name to put on the board. And uh, sadly, Johann is, I guess, my surname, John. But Tetzel was, again, one of those guys that if he had not been as good as he was, he would not have torqued off as many people as he did. And uh, we, the Lord would have found another way, I'm sure, but he was the way that caused this to occur. So, And Charles V is later going to be involved whenever we see the actual uh, legalization of Lutheranism. So that's an, an, interesting, an interesting thing to think, that up until this time, the Holy Roman Emperor was Catholic. And in this case, he's, uh, he's beginning to see the writing on the wall. So we have 21 was whenever we have the Diet of Worms where Luther refuses to recant. But then just a short couple of years later, we have uh, Ulrich Zwingli kind of show up and really start <coughs> kicking off the Reformation in Switzerland. Uh, we have pretty much competing uh, city-states and it's kind of interesting to me how this all got going in the fact that there wasn't just a Germany, there wasn't just a France, there were many feudal lords and city-states that were bound together through these, this feudal lord system. And in fact, one of the really sad things that did occur right after Luther kind of began this rebellion was a peasant's revolt where they all were like, well, surely the clergy's the bad guys in this, and so we should take over and get rid of this whole feudal system. It did not play well, and Martin Luther actually wrote against it, but uh, it sparked a general distrust by many people for the, uh, for the Lutheran church as well, that they did not go on with that. So it was, it was rather... <laughs> difficult for me to whenever I was reading through it think, to think that his writings inspired so many but then uh, it inspired them to violence which the Swiss kind of took up some of this violence they started exporting mercenaries and it became a, a, a part of their okayness that as long as it was for the right reasons you could fight which again the rose the Anabaptists that had a well we really shouldn't fight and so we have this waterfall effect of government and religion being involved together and that involvement rising up problems that need to be dealt with. So I guess it's an entirely uh, longer discussion to think through the whole, is there a really a benefit of separation between church and state? Which... Whenever we hear about it with us, I think, I think it's not what we originally wrote down in the Constitution, but I think there's a much better case for letting it be separate than it was showing here. Because at this time, again, every feudal lord had to say, well, I'm a part of this kingdom, and that kingdom is Catholic. And once we start in uh, 21, this revolution we actually have certain kings like William the Wise. I think, was it, was it William, wasn't it? Let's see. 
making sure I get the right fellow. Frederick, excuse me, Frederick III, Frederick the Wise. He was a, uh, a Germanic king that was not, uh, he was convinced himself of the difference of the Reformation and actually sided with Luther and was ultimately got himself in some hot water, but uh, we'll see later his, his further influence. So Ulrich Zwingli was the fellow that we'll see also come on the scene with the Lord's Supper. There was a large number of opinions, and I honestly didn't know what to call my belief on that before. I knew what I believed, but I wasn't sure what they called it. I'd always heard of consubstantiation or transubstantiation, but what are we? We don't have a fancy big name that I could find. Do we have a fancy big name? The Reformed? Yes. In uh, Keith Madison's book on the Lord's Supper, he called it supra-substantiation. It's the Holy Spirit bringing you know, the presence of Christ down from above. Supra, rather than con, in, with, or under, which I call a prepositional view of the Lord's Supper. But it's supra-substantiation. It was Keith Madison's term. Well, uh, John Calvin called it the uh, spiritual presence, and so that's what I kind of stuck with. Yeah. It didn't sound as cool as the other ones. It's a lot easier, it's a lot catchier, too. But the other one that Zwingli kind of came up with was it was in a memorial. And so he wasn't truly present, we were just remembering him. And I think that was really the first time that this rang a bell in my head that that was kind of what I grew up with. In my non-denominational church, we never talked about it being the body of Christ literally or figuratively as it being imbued with Christ's body. We just talked about remembering Christ and the sacrifice he made for us. And so I'm pretty sure that I grew up as a Church of Christ person with more of that memorial view. And it didn't come until later, whenever I was studying that I really thought about it and thought, well, no, there's more to it than just being a memorial. And so whenever you read Calvin's works on it, it gets nice and complicated. And so if you can commend that book, I would, I would I'd say you should share that. Yes, Monica? Yeah, I, I'm just asking on the re- remembrance part, because like, like Luke in 22, when it talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper, Christ himself says, do this in remembrance of me. It, it, so is that the stand that they're taking? So if we look through the four different ones, we had the Catholic Church that was saying that the priests themselves were able, right. through their mass and their prayer, to transform it to where Christ was truly, right. it became. And whereas Luther basically took more of an Aristotle view of, well, it's not, it's not really the body, but it's, it's in there. In there and so, uh, and so Zwingli was more of a remember, as you're saying. The memorial. Yeah, the memorial. So that is. So is he? Is he saying that it's because of like the Bible passages? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. He's basically Zwingli was going back to if it wasn't specifically stated in the Bible, we don't do it. And so. He, he wasn't wrong in a lot of things. He is, in my mind, a great reformer compared to uh, the men of his age that just went along 
with a lot of what had become the, the mod, that time's modern view. But, and so, in this case, though, I think that if you look at what the reformers came up with, uh, in fact, one of the other fellows, Bullinger, he went with his, uh, his uh, mentor, Zwingli, in that memorial standpoint, but they, they came up with a, an actual document that they all signed that made it to where they could be harmonious in how they viewed the Lord's Supper and could at least talk friendly to each other about it. But uh, in this case, we, uh, we see that fourth view is what we'll probably get more into next week when we start talking about some of the English. Because this is just the, the, the kind of the cauldron where all this is taking place in Europe. There's lots of stuff still going on in Spain. There's lots of stuff going on in England at this exact same time. But for the purposes of the time we have today, I was focusing primarily on the uh, European and what we would be very comfortable recognizing as the, as the beginnings of it. And so if you've, uh, if you've not thought about that, spiritual presence being in there. I think that the difference was as well is that there was no actual uh, opportunity for it to be a a sacrament in the memorial view as much as it is for us. It is actually an opportunity for us to be be actually changed, whereas for them it was just a, a memorial like we would have for and perhaps I'm not putting a very fine point on what the good difference would be, and that would be probably why there's so there isn't a lot of there's not a lot of books written about the two differences, <laughs> unless you're really interested. Yeah. Well, there's some big differences. Uh, Here we go. <laughs> well, you, you have to remember the way the reformed view is, and the way when we have the Lord's Supper, is it, it's a means of grace. It must go with the word. Uh, that's why we always have a sermon before we have communion. And we don't believe in, you know, this idea of the elements being infused with the Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit is here with the church always. Mm-hmm. That's why the key is, are, when, when we tell people uh, as far as coming to who can and who can't, is are you in Christ? And, and we also look at the Lord's Supper as a bolstering of faith. And faith comes through God the Holy Spirit. So the presence of the Holy Spirit is always here with the church. And when we look at the communion that binds us together, all in Christ, that is binding. It comes through God the Holy Spirit. That's when we sort of get into this idea of verses uh, one of the issues that we probably get into is the ubiquity of Christ. And that was one of the problems that you have also with consubstantiation as well as transubstantiation, which, personally, I would argue transubstantiation <coughs> is a violation of Calcidon. Because you are mixing, you're saying, the Roman Catholic Church is saying that the essence of the bread and the wine through the consecration prayer of the priest becomes really blood and body of Christ. Therefore, you're violating Chalcedon. 
And so to, to try to, to put that maybe simpler for me, we're talking about where Christ is actually at. His body currently is seated at the right hand of God. And so if we did that, we'd be drawing him back from there, and he would have to be here as well over and over again? Well, not only that, but he's like today. Uh, every Roman Catholic church is going to have their mass. And they gather here, 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 all the way, all, all over this area and all over the United States. Okay, you are now subscribing a property of the omnipresence of God to now the humanity of God, or, or, or of Christ. And now you've... You've made him not human. You, you, you've made the humanity something that it's not supposed to be, because within Chalcedon, it states each property maintains, each nature maintains its own properties. One of the properties of divinity is omnipresence. Christ can be everywhere, or God can be everywhere, the Holy Spirit can be everywhere, but his humanity can't. I and could that, not have that, said it that well myself. That, and that's key to Chalcedon, which the Roman Catholic Church also accepts as an ecumenical creed. I'm always kind of curious how they work that around the idea of you know, not being called Eutychians. Well, there, there was a lot of uh, name dropping. I mean, we, we had uh, Zwingli was called an historian by Luther. Oh, no. And so we have a lot of that material is, I mean, the ubiquity of Christ is something I've read, but I have not articulated it, again, that, that way you just did there, but I think that's why we, we have to realize that the Bible is something we can literally study for a lifetime. And today we can start off just being comfortable that we are being given an opportunity to partake of grace whenever we're taking the Lord's Supper here. Whereas that, to me, is more than it just being a memorial. And so that's why I think that uh, there's a position there. Yep? I, I might be the only one. I have a question. I was going to thank you for your explanation. So in this 1529, this box, these four uh, viewpoints, um, based on, you know, Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, like Luke 22, we talked about it there, other places. Um, these viewpoints start... These four different viewpoints come to be about the kind of converge at this time. Well, right? truly, at this point, uh, the the final one that you see there, the the spiritual presence, isn't that that big of a deal at that moment. At fifteen twenty nine, the big deal is the differences between the memorial, the consubstantiation, and the transubstantiation. It's just that at that same time, we have literally Calvin writing and articulating. <coughs> what would become the prevalent Protestant view. And so I've included it in the box for our discussion. But it's kind of just beginning, formulating. Yeah, yeah and it's, well, it's just like we just kind of just did just now, is the understanding of the, uh, of the institution of the Lord's Supper was well known to the priesthood by that time, right? <coughs> but not everyone had studied it to the depth capable of articulating it, kind of like Wayne just did to us. And so it wasn't until enough people were exposed and were able to say, I actually have, uh, I believe and affirm what this fellow is writing, 
that they began to separate some of these positions to where you have groups. Uh, and sadly, this is again where the political portion of this really comes into play, is that if your king of your city-state was a Catholic, you had to say you were a Catholic. And the Lutheran states, the, there's a very unusual name that they formed, this, uh, this alliance, that eventually go up against uh, Charles V, and they do lose, but they win enough that it becomes a painful point that he ultimately signs an accord that lets there be Lutheran states to where you can choose, I'm either A or B, which kind of leaves the Protestants out in the cold because they weren't legal still. Yeah. So the, the thing that Calvin really ends up doing with his spiritual presence is he, he actually ends up finding a middle ground between Luther and Zwingli because Luther's view suffered from some of the same things that Wayne talked about with regard to the Catholics. It ended up with the body and blood of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus being more than one place at once. So that was problematic. But Zwingli made it only a memorial and nothing else, which doesn't account for passages like 1 Corinthians 10, which says that the Lord's Supper is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. So... Calvin, by finding a middle view account with a spiritual presence, accounts for things that are missed by both Luther and by Zwingli. Yeah, there's a very interesting discourse that uh, between uh, Luther and Zwingli, where they're going back and forth at it, and uh, that you're you're probably correct in the fact that there was there was a need for something other than just the uh, something that would tear apart the Chalcedon or the tradition of, of that word, two natures. As we're doing it today, it was pretty much codified, uh, really almost in the, the well, in the, the Institutes by Calvin is whenever he wrote it down. It was later, next century, that the Westminster Divines would write it down in such a way that it makes it easier for me to talk about by being able to read their works, but that Protestant view of, of the uh, spiritual presence is been since then. So in this, in that 1529, it was written down. It's just that it wasn't widely known. And again, the Huguenots were basically, or were Swiss, uh, originally were Swiss Protestants that because of political turmoil were forced to leave and they went into France and ended up uh, forming a very large block of people there, they were largely merchants and, and not the lower class, more of a middle class, and they were not well tolerated by the, uh, the Catholic uh, majority. So, so uh, good news for me, I don't have to do a lot of preparation next week, <laughs> because uh, apparently we were not going to get through all this, and that's okay, because... Uh, I, I again think it's very interesting to see the inner app, uh, inner workings here. We have Ecolampedius, uh, which is uh, the fellow up in the top right, who kind of comes into this in the in the end of the scene when he's doing work, writing a paper, a document that becomes a 
a treaty that does say we can all live together, you can have your consubstantiation, you can have your transubstantiation, we're going to have this memorial, but we're going to say the transubstantiation's wrong, and they became just okay with the Lutherans. And so uh, that lets some peace begin in the skull. I'll have to get the right name there. We see that primarily in... Let's go to the right fellow. Where is that name of that wonderful document? Well, I'm going to go ahead and punt on that one and come back to him next week. Because, again, it was, it's interesting to me about the political maneuverings that are occurring in the European sector. We have Rome trying to maintain power, France beginning to really separate from being the Holy Roman Emperor to just being, I'm just the Emperor. And, uh, and we see the Germanic the people groups that are to the north largely beginning to really buy into Lutheranism. And so if you look today, there are still uh, national religions in most of Europe, even though they're very poorly attended today. And so um, the entire Nordic regions, most of them ended up being Lutheran, but there were some Catholic uh, national states as well. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll kind of end today, I suppose, just by bringing up a little bit of this Anabaptist view, this, this group that was in Switzerland that basically in, in the Netherlands, they kind of rise up as a yet more reformer reformers in their mind. They think that things have not gone far enough. And they uh, are the first group, a, a, fellow, a fellow named Conrad Grable is kind of the initial leader and he uh, eventually influences uh, Menno Simmons, who we would recognize today as the beginner of the Mennonites. And so, again, the persecution forces them out of their area, and they move to a new land and prosper. But, and there, there was a fellow that, uh, let me find the... He's written down on my, my thing as Michael Sattler, and this Schlettheim Confession of Faith was like a seven-part what we believe for the Anabaptists. And so we can touch a little bit on it as well, because I think that if you look at most of our non-denominational views here today, a lot of them have their roots in that movement. There was a general distrust of clergy. There was a general distrust of the organized church. And so they very much were an independent group, some of which were not as educated as others, but uh, there was a lot of uh, prolific writing, but not, not to the degree we see by the others here. The names that are in red getting this back a little bit to if you were to if you were to ask me who do who would I say are one of the the five leaders of the Reformation uh, 
There's lots of them. But if you were to try to get some from some sources that you're familiar with, like Ligonier, they do have nice works on these five. And so Tyndale is one of the ones that we didn't get much time to, to speak of, but he was an Englishman that desperately wanted to translate the Bible into English for the English people. And he tries to do so, and ultimately is uh, forced to leave the area because of the, the, the political maneuverings in England at the time. We have a, a king that's very popular, or very uh, dishap- uh, disheartened by the fact the Pope won't let him annul a marriage, Henry VIII, that writes an, a document that separates and forms the Church of England. So... We'll see that, and I'll, I was planning on basically hearkening back to it when we talk more about the next century, because it's, the success of the next century largely is predicated on that separation. And uh, I guess one other thing I'll, I'll th- say I skipped over a little bit that I thought was cool was in Scotland, in 1497, they actually mandated that children had to attend school. And so up until that time, that was not a, not a thing. If you were a wealthy person, you were able to be tutored, but the vast majority of people were uneducated. And I just thought it was kind of neat as early as in for, at that time that whenever Scotland gained its sovereignty, one of the first things they did was come out with a Scots confession, which is a, a wonderful confession that they still... It was not completely supplanted by the Westminster divines, but more of a, an add-on, the divines were, but, or the confession was. But uh, in any case, it made provision for the families to have a place to send their children to be educated, and I thought that was kind of, kind of cool. So, Well, I guess we'll, we'll stop there, and we'll pick up uh, next week. And I guess uh, if you found the, the handout handy at all, then I guess keep it. And I won't print more next time, and uh, we'll we'll go over baptism and the others next week. I'm sure we'll we'll finish that out. So, shall we? Are there any questions or comments? Uh, we he hasn't is he running it a second time already? But uh, the time says he should have. But was there any other comments? I can't help myself, but you smiled at me. I was like, oh, you might be wanting to say something. Yeah. All right. Father, we thank you for your providence that you have, in your will, given us an opportunity to study today, and we thank you for the opportunity for us to worship you, Lord. We pray that you would give us the ability to do so rightly, and we ask you, Lord, for our community around us to be drawn to you. Give us opportunities, Lord, to glorify you in our interactions with them. We pray for those that are not feeling well and are ill, Lord, for those that have lost people recently, and for those that are in need of, uh, of healing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.